0: Hi, and welcome to The Full Bloom Project, a body-positive parenting podcast dedicated to promoting emotional wellness in our children and health at every size for the whole family.
1: Each week, we speak with extraordinary experts and distill everything from scholarly research to self-help books into accessible and digestible daily parenting practices. We're your hosts, Zoe Bisbing
0: and Leslie Block both New York City-based adolescent eating disorder psychotherapists and mothers of two, here to help you help your children fully bloom.
1: This episode is brought to you by the letter I for intuitive eating. To gain access to the virtual guide to this episode, please subscribe to the Full Bloom Project mailing list at fullbloomproject.com. Our virtual guides help reinforce the ABCs of body positive parenting by providing additional research and resources so you can help your children fully bloom. Today
0: is part one of a very special two-part episode featuring Evelyn Triboli, the award-winning registered dietitian and co-pioneer of the intuitive eating concept. Since her groundbreaking book, Intuitive Eating, was first published, there have been more than 80 studies showing its robust mental,
1: physical, and emotional benefits for adults and children. In this episode, Evelyn helps us tackle two extremely important body-positive parenting topics, why we all want to raise intuitive eaters, and how to manage what most of us know as junk food. We'll talk more specifically about the inherent problems with calling any food junk, and how to most effectively help our kids trust themselves around sweets and treats next week. But today,
0: we're excited to dive into what intuitive eating for body-positive parents looks like with the original intuitive eating Pro. Evelyn, welcome to the Full Bloom Project. We're so pleased to have you here.
2: I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you.
3: So one of our biggest questions is, hey, Evelyn, how do you raise an intuitive eater and what is intuitive eating?
2: Oh my gosh! Okay, (laughs) right to it. Basically, intuitive eating is about putting you at front and center as the expert of your own body. And in the case of raising our little munchkins, and by the way, I've got two kids who are now grown adults, it's about letting them develop the mastery and autonomy around eating in terms of fullness and and hunger and what's satisfying and so on, and so they can enjoy a, a full life and. It's really a dynamic integration of the wisdom from our body combined with all these other things that are going on that I'm not going to go into great details with. But there's a a study I'd like to kick this off that I think should cause every parent to, to step up and go, oh. And this was published a few years ago. And what they did, they looked at college age kids and they asked the question, what was it like growing up in terms of eating in your family? And they they filled out the questionnaire and they gave the same questionnaire to the parents and asked the same question. And what they found is that, and I always like to use this description. I've parents are really well-meaning and they're under such pressure right now. But what they found is well-meaning parents who really monitored their kids' eating, that restricted their kids' eating, they grew up to be the college-age kids who had problems with binge eating and scoring really low on intuitive eating uh, assessment scales. And the reason I like to bring this study into the forefront right now is there's so much pressure on parenting in terms of raising their children. I've had parents tell me they feel guilt or shame if they have kids of different size, if they're not eating the perfect type of, of food or whatever they consider that to be. So there's a lot of pressure. And the cool thing is it's not hard to raise an intuitive eater, but it really takes a lot of trust, trust in the process that the body works. And also as a parent, parent, if you've had some unresolved issues around your own eating and body, there might be some opportunity for you to do some healing so that this doesn't get you know put onto your kids as we're raising them in our diet culture right now as it stands.
1: We talk a lot about that and the importance of parents that are struggling with these concepts to take a look at whatever issues they may be having themselves. And so I feel like we could do a whole Other episodes specifically on that and how, and maybe we will if you'll come back. Um, but in terms of these concrete steps, at least the fundamentals, the like the power version 101, what are these steps to introduce the practice of raising an intuitive eater, especially if it's a brand new concept and maybe you have a two-year-old, but maybe you have a a nine-year-old. Like, how do you get started with this?
2: Well, there's, there's 10 principles of intuitive eating, but usually when I get started when I'm working with parents or just someone who's seeing me for the first time, it's, it's really connecting with listening to the body and cultivating an atmosphere, let's just say at the dinner table, where the kids get to decide how much food they're going to eat based on their hunger and, and fullness level. And what this means from a parenting standpoint is you is, is we have the food on the table, but the kid, your child gets to determine how much they're going to eat and what they're going to eat of that food. And it's really a, a powerful, powerful process. And for some parents, it means kind of letting go a little bit. I've had parents I've worked with who are really concerned about the, the health of their children. And so they might bribe their kids that, you know, if you want to eat dessert, you got to eat the broccoli. And yet we've seen over and over again through research that the more you bribe a kid to eat something, it gives a double message that this food is so lousy that you've got to be rewarded to have to, to eat it and then secondly, it doesn't work it's It's really important that we give our children the opportunity to listen and to honor their own bodies to not disregard their satiety signals of fullness and and satisfaction. And what ends up happening, if out of your own own worry and fear that your kid's not getting enough nutrition, if you push them to eat something, you're interfering with that process of listening. And there was a famous study published, oh my goodness, I want to say Probably over 20 years ago in a very prestigious journal, and I'll never forget it because somewhere in the introduction it said when you look at your kids eating, especially toddlers, it appears as if it's your worst nightmare nutritionally (laughs) 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 on a date. On a, based on a meal or based on a day. And what they found over a two-week period is that the eating really balanced out really quite nicely. So some of the things that I do in terms of working with parents in this process, if this is new for them, I ask them, what is your fear? What is your biggest fear in terms of letting your kid self-regulate? And so uh, sometimes they, they will tell me, I'm afraid they're not gonna get enough of the right food. I'm afraid they're gonna eat too much of other kinds of foods. And so this is where we have to develop this um, sense of trust. And one of my favorite stories around this was when my son was two. I made an amazing meal, I have to say. That dinner was, but it was a home cooked dinner and my favorite one of my favorite desserts at the time homemade carrot cake. And I served all of us the same amount of cake. And my son ate all his dinner, he ate all his cake, and he said, More, mommy. And I have to tell you, in all honesty, in that moment, I'm thinking, Dude, you had enough. That was the mommy in me, but the intuitive eater's like, Let the guy eat, you know. So I served him another um, slice of cake, the same size. And do you know what he did? He ate one piece and said, I'm done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he one bite more. And so when parents mm-hmm. start to observe these kinds of things, that helps them build trust in in the process. But what ends up happening is if kids have to be rewarded or bribed to eat a certain way, they start eating out of opportunity. If you have rigid but well-winning rules around eating, like no desserts or no sugar, then that's a child who's going to eat based on opportunity in terms of, oh my gosh, we get to have dessert today. Regardless of how full they are, they're probably going to take even more opportunity to eat it because they don't know when they're ever going to have it again. And one of the ways I see this play out is at birthday parties, you can usually tell the kid that came from the family that's really restricted because they're going, um, there's a lot of energy all around the food, not the gifts, not the games, but how much how much goodies can I stuff in my pocket? So those are the kinds of things that end up happening, the unintended consequences of well-meaning parenting. I
1: like that example because I think that it's something that our listeners can like tune into when they're at the next birthday party, sort of like a good gauge. And I guess I'm wondering, like, to get even more specific, what kind of responsibility then does the parent have, like a parent that really does want to start building this trust from the beginning or rebuilding trust if they haven't had it? what is the responsibility in terms of what to offer? Because I'm not hearing you say like, just don't serve a meal, just let your child open the refrigerator and pick whatever they want. Like it sounds like there's some opportunity the parent's creating and then the child gets some choice within that opportunity. But I'm just curious if you can get a little more specific about like what this looks like at dinner.
2: You are absolutely right. And what you're describing sounds a lot like the work from uh, Ellen Satter, and we're huge mm-hmm. fans of her her work. And for those of you not familiar, she's both a therapist and a dietitian. That's done incredible work in the parent-child feeding relationship, and she describes the division of labor. We're basically jobs. The job of the parent is to provide the meal, and the job of the child is is to eat it. If and if and when how much they they want to eat of of the food, and that's it. There's no drama. There's no energy uh, involved around how much the kid eats or doesn't eat. And that's probably the biggest coaching I do with parents is that if you're putting energy and body language into your child's food selection, they're exquisite At picking it up. And so we want to treat uh, mealtime as kind of a fun time, a time to connect. We know with research that family meals are really uh, so associated with so many health benefits beyond uh, just a a healthy body, but in terms of the communication that goes on and so on. But if mealtimes turn into uh, tugs of war about what you should or shouldn't be eating, or there's a lot of fights and arguments, that's not going to be a pleasant uh, situation. So we want it just to be kind of a, a nice place where we come together and enjoy our food, you know, eating is one of the pleasures of life. And I think in our culture, it has taken a turn where people have forgotten that, you know? Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely.
3: I think a lot of our listeners are going to be thinking, okay, how do I change course here? Because I didn't mean to not be supporting intuitive eating in my children. And I have disconnected them already So I'm wondering kind of how do you approach your family and your kids and say like, hey, we're doing something differently. Do you recommend that people actually say that or do you recommend they just kind of
2: start doing things differently? I think it depends on on the family and the age of the kids. But I I think it's good to communicate that we're doing something a little bit differently and you you describe what what that is. And in the beginning, sometimes the kids are a little distrustful. Like if you're going to serve if you decide you're going to serve dessert with dinner, so it's equal equal opportunity. Um, they, they want to wait and see the consistency. Like, are mom or mom and dad really, you know, serious about this? But yeah, I'd have I'd have a a, a conversation about this and. You know, the the thing I look at, this is an opportunity to do things different. Nothing is irrevocable, and it could be a lot of fun when you look at taking away all the pressure and drama around the eating. We don't have expectations about how much somebody's going to eat or of what foods. And I'll tell you a funny story. My two nephews and my son were like the three amigos growing up, and they would come over all the time, and I would make them this one dinner they would always request, and it was pasta with all these vegetables on it, And it was about five years later, (laughs) my sister asked me for the recipe and she was stunned. She goes, Evelyn, my kids have hated bell peppers and they've hated whatever it was that I, but they love your recipe. What is it? And I talked to the kids and they said, you never pressured us to eat. You didn't care if we picked it out. You didn't care how much or how little. So it's that kind of energy that we need to look into doing this. And the kids have the ability to do this. And it's important to know that as your kids are growing, they grow into growth spurts, they're going to have times when they're really hungry. And they're going to have times that they're not hungry so much. And you're, you're not going to have malnutrition based on, on one day of, of how they ate or, or they or they didn't eat. I think sometimes we have this fear that we're going to irrevocably harm our kid based on what they ate at dinner. And that's not not the case. Yeah. I'm
1: curious how you approach kids that are more food driven, because we've, we've talked to other people on this podcast about treating them no differently than you'd treat a kid that Was less food driven, especially if they're even if uh, particularly if they're in a larger body. But I'm just curious because since some kids are sort of more naturally food driven than others, I'm wondering like can we still trust them? Like even the ones that are more excited about hyper palatable foods or whatever, like can we still offer them the same trust that we offer kids that maybe don't seem as interested or as excitable? Do you do you know what I mean?
2: I do and and when someone describes that kind of scenario which you're you're pointing out kids that are hyper excitable or food driven I always like to look at where is this coming from? Where's where's the energy on this? So one of the things I like to look at, where is, is and then these are possibilities, that mean it doesn't it mean it's happening. How often is food being used as reward? How often is food being used and, and paired in exciting activities? You know, like I look at, especially at younger kids when they're involved in little league games and 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 soccer and so on, that treats are part of the process. And so sometimes what's driving that excitement isn't the food, but what's associated with it. Then if you have a well-meaning parent who wants to put limits on it because they think their kid's too excited about the eating, it actually creates a vicious circle and a synergy where now the child becomes actually more excited about the food. So one of the things I like to take a look at is how do kids' behavior get rewarded in the family, not just your family by mom and dad, but by the caregivers and, and grandparents and extended family. I think that's that's really uh, important to take a look at that. Uh, I'll give another example Uh, When my daughter was in high school, it was very tragic. One of her uh, good friends was um, tragically killed. And we went to the the funeral. And after that, a bunch of the friends and the moms, we went out to breakfast. And my daughter said, you know, mom, I don't really feel like going to school. Can I take the day off? And I said, of course. And so I remember thinking, well, how can we spend this day in a way in which she feels nurtured and we can deal with some of these feelings and not turn toward food as a way of coping and soothing? Granted, we had this conversation over a meal. So I remember we went and we listened to music. We went and looked at puppies. I think we had a meal, but it wasn't all about the food. So those are the kinds of things that I, that I look at because I don't want to have these associations. And by the way, if there's any parents out there listening thinking, oh, my God, I have rewarded my kid with, with food, it's not the one reward, the one time. It's what you're doing consistently over time. And then the, the, the biggest element then to maybe look at is, ah, oh, what can I do differently in terms of if I'm using a reward in, in terms of my child's behavior?
3: Yeah, I think that's, that's really helpful to, to hear that. This is happening in our world where our our kids and our listeners' kids are going to be rewarded with food. And is it enough for us to just really work on this at home? I think that's a question that I imagine your
2: clients have and listeners might have. Yeah, you know, I think I think of the home as being where the foundation's really being set and where where the things happen the most time. And it's true. They might be involved in some kind of uh, club or organization where food is used sometimes as a reward. But when it's used across the board, that's when I get uh, concerned. I get concerned, and I've seen this pattern, at least in my area, when, when parents are shopping with younger kids. And they're using food as a way to keep their kids engaged in activity so they're not complaining or being cranky around the shopping. So they're eating some exciting foods, but it has nothing to do with hunger or even desire so much, but it's more about to placate and and, and self-soothe them because they're doing a boring activity, you know? Mm -hmm. I can really
1: relate to that instinct because as a parent, in those tough moments in particular, like if you have to run an errand and you have your kid with you and- you know I see a lot of parents do that with like devices with iPads, or like you're saying in some cases with with snacks with foods, and so it's not necessarily because the child asks for a snack but rather to like you said placate or distract or kind of keep them quiet and i I'm appreciating that that's just like that's sort of an instinct that parents have, and it's like a survival instinct in a way so how to notice that and sort of make room for the fact that you may have that urge to use food in some of these other ways, because like, of course you do as a busy parent trying to take care of 30 things at once, uh-huh. but then also how to think a little bit more carefully about what you may be reinforcing in doing so.
2: Exactly. And so, the theme that we're really talking about in this context is, is issues of eating in the absence of hunger. And the more that we have our kids engaged in eating in the absence of hunger, it becomes easy to eat for any other kind of reason and be disconnected from body cues. And what, in, in fact, you know what's really interesting? I didn't even tell you this, but we originally formulated the model of intuitive eating based on all the research from, from kids. You know, mm. it, was, it was the kids' thing and, and the research that we kept saying over and over out in a really good way that, wait a minute, this makes sense for adults too. So I think parents might take some, um, comfort in knowing that, that there's a really big body of work looking at this dynamic. But the moment we make food too exciting and unavailable, or we make it, it's conditional, conditional on good behavior, conditional on eating a certain amount of vegetables. That's when we start to get into to problems.
3: That always excites me because, um, I just, Love research, and um, so I'm. I, I'm excited, and I want to highlight that the the concept of intuitive eating and the process that you pioneered was really based on all this research. I think it kind of loops back to the topic of this conversation, which is like, why is intuitive eating so important in
2: mm. raising
3: a a body positive child? If, if we raise kids to be intuitive eating, how does that help them fully bloom? hmm
2: oh. What a great question that is. Well, when you think about what all intuitive eating is, it's not just about eating. It's also about being able to cope with your feelings without using food. It's about respecting your body. And so, when we're doing all of these types of things, it's a dynamic integration in which you really have the authentic self. And since you're both therapists, you know how important that is. And so, when you really know that you're the expert of your body and no other person knows what hunger feels like to you or what satisfies, there's a, a trust that. That ends up happening that hopefully will help inoculate from this toxic culture that we're living in. And it's funny, I'm not. I'm, I'm a very positive person, but I will tell you, I've never in my wildest dream since writing Intuitive Eating a us over almost 25 years ago. I didn't think we'd see the culture uh, evolve to where it is right now, where there's so much shaming involved around. Eating, and I think it's a form of unnecessary suffering. Life is tough enough, raising a family is tough enough. We don't need to be adding to the stress of the parents this kind of unnecessary suffering. I
1: agree, yes. we agree, and really appreciate what you're saying about intuitive eating being fundamental not just to raising your child to be a person who knows how to eat in a uh, nourishing and pleasurable way but also can support the development of themselves, their authentic selves. And we'll have other episodes where we're talking about that more specifically, but we see that a lot. And I see that in my practice when people come here to sort of reclaim their relationship with food, they can start to reclaim, there's like a parallel process in terms of reclaiming their relationship with themselves and the way they are in the world. And so um, it's partly why we're so uh, adamant about speaking with you and, and helping parents understand that in raising an intuitive eater, you're raising a person that has a really strong foundation.
2: Yeah, because that, that that trust, that's, and we're talking about trusting our instincts of hunger, fullness, satisfaction, but that trust that actually operates comes from a different part of the brain in which it also affects the way we trust ourselves in in the world and the decisions that we make, and which therefore also reinforces autonomy. And It's, it's actually exciting to watch people, well to use your word, to bloom in this process. I never tire of it to be a witness to the transformation that's possible when we We can liberate families from the tyranny of food rules, you know?
1: (laughs) We'll stop here for today, but the conversation about raising intuitive eaters is not over. Be sure to join us next episode for the rest of our interview with Evelyn Triboli and our playful conversation about managing junk food. We'll also share a special debrief from us about putting body positive feeding principles into action with our own kids and our realization that raising an intuitive eater is not always so intuitive as always we are interested in your take
0: on this episode and what new parenting practice our guest inspired in you we'll be on the lookout for your comments and questions on instagram So please be sure to follow us at Full Bloom Project and tune back in next time for more body
1: positive parenting wisdom.